Hey everyone, it's Gillian Frank. Welcome to a bonus episode of Sexing History. This episode features my extended interview with Maribel Morgan. Parts of this interview appeared in our fifth episode from season one called Touch Me, I'm Yours. You can hear that episode on our website or wherever you stream your podcasts. In 1973, Maribel Morgan's marriage guide, The Total Woman, became a bestseller and a cultural sensation. Millions of people had read The Total Woman and thousands signed up for her Total Woman classes. These classes offered advice about living according to Christian principles. They also included sexual assignments for wives, such as asking them to dress up in sexy lingerie, wearing exotic costumes, and being prepared to have sexual intercourse with their husbands every night for a week. Historians and cultural commentators interested in the intersections of gender, faith, and sexuality frequently refer to Maribel Morgan's ideas and to her influence. Although she was a fixture on television during the 1970s, recorded interviews with Maribel Morgan are nearly impossible to find. We are therefore delighted to share this interview with Maribel Morgan, in which she shares her memories about her childhood, her marriage, and how writing The Total Woman changed her life. Now, please enjoy our conversation. Your books were incredibly influential, and it would be so great to share them with our listeners and to share your recollections of them and what they meant to you. Well, I would love to do that. So why don't we begin by having you tell us about yourself and where you grew up and what kind of family you grew up in. <clears throat> okay, well, currently, I'm a very grateful wife and mother. Uh, I've been married to Charlie Morgan for 52 years. And I have two darling daughters and six darling grandchildren. So I'm very happy and immersed in the family. Um, I'm also an artist, and I like to play tennis, so that's my current life. Um, my past wasn't so happy. Um, I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, a small town, and my mother was very disturbed uh, as I was a child. And I don't know how much information you want me to go into, but... Please, please share. No, please continue. Okay. Um, well, my father ran off when I was a baby, so I never knew him. But my mother married her second husband when I was six, and we had a year and a half of happiness. And I remember that as just the highlight of my life. But then my mother um, got involved in the occult. And after some time, she actually became psychotic. And when I was in the third grade, she decided that people were looking in the windows at her. And one day she pulled down all the blinds in our house and she went upstairs to bed and she stayed there. She wouldn't come down. And I was an only child. My daddy went to work and came home at night. My mother stayed in bed all through my third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, all through junior high. I was eight when she went upstairs and I was 14 when she came back down. And it, even just saying it, it still gives me a little tremor. Um, so those were lost years for me. I was just a little girl. But she said that I had to be the mommy of the house. 
and I had to care for her. So we had reversed roles, which you know all about, I'm sure. And that sounds so difficult. I'm sorry. I said that sounds so difficult. It was very difficult. I was totally lost as a little girl. But I can remember thinking that someday when I grew up, I was going to have a family that loved each other. And that became my goal. It was sort of something to hang on to. It was about the only thing I had to hang on to. And um, so that's, that was my childhood. And I, because of that, um, I, I began early on to, to think, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Where am I going? Even as a child, I had those thoughts. And so it, it sort of propelled me on a search for purpose. And I can remember thinking, I think probably in the eighth grade, I thought, I'm going to search for truth. That will be my motivating purpose. And I didn't know what truth was. I didn't even know if there was such a thing, but I thought that's what I'll look for. So that sort of helped me uh, propel me along too. Can you tell us a little bit about your religious journey and how that led you to write The Total Woman? Well, because of searching for truth, I, I didn't know quite where to look. Uh, it wasn't until I got to Ohio State that I had access to um, the religions and the philosophies of the world. So I, I tried to read those. After I did my homework at night, I would read uh, Zoroaster and Bertrand Russell and the different religions. And I thought, this doesn't really make sense to me because everything I read claimed to be true and they all contradicted each other the religions contradicted each other and I thought how can truth contradict truth and and so I didn't know where to look after that um, but then I came back from college after one year and went to work and one of my customers said to me one day God loves you and Gail I don't think I had ever heard that and it just hit me. And she said, he does, he loves you. And he proved it by coming down to this earth and becoming a man. And of course she was talking about Jesus. And she said he came for one purpose, to die and pay the penalty for all the things you've done wrong. And she said, if you believe that, then he will forgive you and you can go to heaven someday. I mean, it was very simple the way she put it to me, which was good because I needed it simply. And I thought, uh, I, I realized that Jesus was the savior of the world and she said, well, you need him to be your savior. And I knew I had a lot of sin and I certainly wanted to go to heaven someday and I thought, this is too simple, this is not going to work. But, I prayed that prayer. I said, Jesus, I'm sorry for all the things I've done wrong. I want you to be my savior. Please come into my life. And I remember that day, it, it, there were no flashing lights or you know any great emotional experience, but something happened inside of me. I, it was like the light came on. 
And I knew that I was clean, I was forgiven. And from that day on, I had a new direction. I was on a new path. And of course, I began to uh, look into this and look into Jesus and scripture. And the path led down to Miami, Florida eventually. And I met Charlie Morgan. And we fell in love and got married, and we had a wonderful first year. And then my marriage began to fall apart because I had never seen a happy marriage. I didn't know how to make one at my house, and I was doing everything really the wrong way. And, um, well, through a series of, of different things that happened, I wised up. And um, our marriage turned around, and then that's how I wrote The Total Woman. I was writing down everything that happened, what I did wrong and what I did right. And eventually it became the book. Now, did you, were, did you have any religious background prior to accepting Jesus in your life at that time? Were you going to any churches, or were you uh, brought up in any way in a religious um, tradition? No, my mother was railing against everything and everyone. And uh, in our house, no one had ever been allowed to come into our house. No children, no playmates, no one. I mean, she ran it like a prison. I was the prisoner. And um, we had nothing. We didn't celebrate Christmas, birthdays, anything, because she was upstairs in bed. But she did allow me on occasion to go to daily vacation Bible school when I was a little girl. And I, I remember, oh, I liked that so much. We sang songs and heard songs, uh, stories about Jesus, and that made me feel calm. But the thing that worried me, they said that we had to be good to be accepted by Jesus. And I knew I wasn't good. I was bad. Down inside, I, I was very bad. I had these terrible thoughts, murderous thoughts, really. I mean, if I could have killed my mother, I think I would have at times. I, I wanted her to be dead so I could be free. So I was just a mess. I was just lost. I was a lost kid. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about the interpersonal journey, the personal journey with your husband that led you to write The Total Woman. Right. Well, um, Charlie and I had such a wonderful beginning. I just thought it was, I thought it was perfect and wonderful. But, you know, I guess it's psychologists that tell us that we tend to repeat the pattern that we saw as a child. And that's all I had ever seen. I really didn't even have much contact with other people growing up. It was just my mother and her relentless, uh, she was on my father's case <laughs> continually. And so I didn't realize I was doing this, but I began to nag Charlie. I, I was on his case day and night about everything. And it's because I was in a turmoil inside, I think all this unresolved hostilities from my childhood sort of was directed to him. I mean, it, it comes out. It's in there and it comes out. And um, one day, well, I had gone to the library because I knew my marriage was floundering and I thought, I've got to get a book on, on what to do. 
and and there were there were two books of theory, big thick books, and I thought I don't need theory, I need something practical. So I didn't know where to turn, and I picked up the Bible one day and turned to the book of Proverbs, and I knew that. King Solomon had written this, and he was supposedly the greatest, wisest man who had ever lived. And I thought, I need wisdom. So I was reading along, flipping the pages, and suddenly I saw this verse. A nagging wife is like a continual dripping on a rainy day. And perhaps you've had this experience. It was just like neon. Those words just shown to me and I it hit me I thought that's me I'm a nagging wife I'm a continual dripping Charlie must think of me as a, a Chinese water torture and and I it was a moment of truth I was so horrified at who I was I actually saw myself as I really was and I thought how has he he even stayed with me this, we were six years into the marriage at this point. And I was like a screaming shrew. I was, because that's what my mother had been. But that day, it was a turning point. I vowed that I was going to stop nagging Charlie if it killed me. And I told him that when he came in that night. And he just looked at me and blinked a couple of times and went right past me and straight to the TV. He he was so fed up he didn't believe a word of it but as time went by he saw that I was I was really trying I was trying to change who I was by myself I didn't even know how to do it but I I took um, the words from Dale Carnegie's book how to win friends and influence people and I wrote don't criticize condemn or complain I wrote it on a little sign, and I put it on the refrigerator. And looking at that sign many times a day began to change how I was talking. I could hear myself, how awful I was. Oh, Gil, it was a terrible time. <laughs> but Charlie began to take notice. And, and I realized, too, I, I was reading Scripture, and there's all kinds of things in Scripture like, um, show respect to your husband, admire your husband, um, show love. And, you know, it seems like, well, this is the ordinary thing you would do, but I hadn't been doing it. I was criticizing him and um, certainly not admiring him and, and loving him the way I should, but I decided I was going to pull out all the stops, and I did, and he took notice and our life began to turn around. I don't know if this is what you want me to be talking about. No, this is so helpful. Can you tell me about Charlie? Well, Charlie is a wonderful man, and it's a good thing he is because he would have walked out on me had he not been. He grew up in a strong, stable Christian family, so he knew all these things. I knew none of this, and, um, you know, we, it's amazing that we lasted. But anyway, he was a good man. He was determined that his marriage was going to last, although he told me later that he wasn't sure he could hang in there until I found myself. Um, but 
He's great. He's stable. Nothing phases him. Everything phases me. We are total opposites. But they say opposites attract, and I guess it works. <laughs> That's wonderful. How did you two meet? Um, I Well, when I became a believer in Jesus, I heard about a Bible college in Miami, Florida. I had never been to Florida. I flew down sight unseen and went to this Bible college because I thought, I'm so late. I know nothing. And if I can go to the Bible college and study for a year, um, you know, I'll make up for lost time. And um, the lady at the Bible college who was the choir director was Mrs. Morgan. And I can't sing, but I joined the choir because she was so wonderful. All of the girls used to ask her for advice, and she was very comforting to us. And she wrote to Charlie, who was off at college, and said, I've met this nice little girl from Ohio. And when he came home at Easter break, he was curious. So he came by the donut shop where I was working over Easter vacation, and and we met. And then the following year, he came down to Miami, um, University of Miami Law School. And so we became friends. Uh, and, and the first year that we were friends, we weren't lovers, we were just friends, and it was a great way to begin a relationship because uh, we really got to know each other and appreciate each other. So what came first, the book or the Total Woman classes? Oh, well, the classes. I'll tell you what happened. Um, <laughs> Charlie, became, Charlie was very straight-laced and, and kind of stiff. And whenever we would go anywhere, he wouldn't want to hold hands. But when we, uh, when I became more loving and affectionate and, and sweet to him and got off his case, he became more overt and would hold hands, put his arm around me. One night we were at a, a tennis match down on Kibis Kane, and he was pulling me close to him and and was so amorous and one of my friends said to me what's happened to Charlie because everybody knew he was just sort of straight laced and I said nothing's happened to Charlie it's what's happened to me and I started telling her about the principles that I was discovering in, in scripture and what I was doing and how he was responding and she said oh my goodness she said if I get some of my friends together would you would you tell us what you're learning and I said, sure. So she did. She got, I think, eight women together, and I told them everything. And then I gave the women assignments. I said, go home and do this tonight and this week, and we'll meet back next week, and you can tell what happened. Well, those women, they just, their lives changed. In one week, their lives were changing. They would come back and tell what had happened and how their husbands were responding. And so from that class, several other classes spun off. And um, I think it was about the sixth class I was teaching in Miami, 12 Miami Dolphin wives showed up. And so we went through the, and I was refining it and putting it into a better outline by this point. And so those 12 Dolphin wives went home and did their homework 
and their husbands puffed up like gladiators, and they marched out on the field, and that was 1972. They trounced every team in sight that year, and they won the playoffs and the Super Bowl. And it was wonderful. I mean, Miami was just rocking. But some people were saying that it was because the wives were total women. And, of course, that thrilled me, but I knew it was because of Coach Shula that this had happened. But I began to get calls from around the NFL. I was peeling potatoes one day, and the phone rang, and it was some guy from the Dallas Cowboys. And he said, we understand that you have this class for the Dolphin Wives, and it's not fair that only they should have it. We want it too. And, and then I got a call from the Green Bay Packers and the Washington Redskins. I mean, it was crazy. And I couldn't go off and teach the class because I had two little girls. So my girlfriend said, well, we'll go teach the class. And um, some of my first instructors were dolphin wives. So they were flying all over the country teaching other teams the principles. That, that's amazing. Can you tell us about some of the assignments that you would give in those early classes? Sure. They were, they were so simple and, and naive, like go home and make his favorite dinner. A lot of my friends, I must admit, didn't cook for their husbands. They, they just rebelled. They didn't want to do it. And I said, well, go home and make his favorite food. And then... Um, Make a sign to yourself that every time you feel a nag coming on, you're going to give a compliment instead of nagging. And um, be ready for sex every night this week. That was one of the assignments. Well, you should have heard the howls and the moans. <laughs> but it was, you know, we were, we were shaking up what had been our regular way of life. And the husbands were responding to this. I mean, just those three assignments would have been enough. But there were all kinds of things like go buy a new nightie. It was so simple. It was so simple and, and probably silly to a lot of people. But lives were being changed. Children's lives were being changed. One little girl had told her mom the day she came to the class for the first time, she and her husband had had a fight that morning at breakfast, and the little girl was five years old, and she said, when I grow up, I'm never going to get married. And the mother realized that she was painting this picture of marriage for this little girl. And so she came to the class that day, and, and her life changed. At, by the end of the, we had a four-week series. By the end of the four weeks, she said her husband was bringing her gifts. He was falling all over himself. He was so thrilled with her change. And, and I was thrilled. I mean, these were families, husbands and wives and children. Their, their lives were being changed. What surprised you the most about the women and the stories they told you in these classes? Well, um... Just that simple little kindness things worked. 
um, I told, I was telling them the things that I was learning from Scripture, for instance. Um, it, it's so practical, like in the Proverbs, uh, Solomon wrote, A gentle answer turns away wrath. And I told them that I'd grown up in a house where there were no gentle answers and there was lots of wrath. And this was such a new concept for me that if someone's yelling at me, my tendency would be to yell back louder. But scripture says a gentle answer turns away wrath. So I explained how I was speaking gently and softly to Charlie and it it, he noticed it, and he responded to it, and it definitely took away wrath. And I said, those little words changed our marriage. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Just, just very simple things. Were most of the women who came to these early classes Christians that you knew, or were there... Tell me about the kinds of women that came to the classes. Right. No, I don't think they were Christians at all. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Sure, some were, I, I suppose. But we had classes all across the spectrum in Miami. Um, I was teaching classes in Jewish high-rises on Miami Beach, um, teaching in a synagogue, teaching in churches, teaching in uh, the YWCA, women's homes. All kinds of people were coming and and they were giving me a little uh, static too because you know this runs counter to what some people believe um, but that was okay because we could debate it and talk about it and and decide well you get to follow whatever you feel I'm not telling anybody what to do I'm just telling you what I did and what I've discovered and if you can take a little bit of it for you fine you say they gave you static. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, people would say, wait a minute, are you saying that I should... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, or, um, you know, I don't blame them. I, I was very volatile myself. If someone had been telling me what to do or, or explaining these things when Charlie and I were um, very angry at each other, I would have reacted. So I understood that, uh, and it's okay, you know. Everybody gets to express their own point of view. A absolutely. So as you were transforming these classes into basically a more refined curriculum, it sounds like that was the basic architecture of the book, that that was the blueprint for the book. That's right. That's right. Besides, well, people were saying to me, can you write this down? Can you write these principles down for me? So I did. I wrote them down in little booklets and was handing them out and um, putting in um, different examples of women who had, what they had done in their homes. I, I always asked people, could I tell this? Could I write this down, your experience? And most people were pretty excited to have that. Um, so... <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, someone said to me, well, what if you wrote a book? And I said, oh, I could never write a book, but I'll, I'll write down these uh, experiences. I had thought that maybe I would write it down, and this shows how long ago, ago it was. I was going to mimeograph it. 
<laughs> and stand on street corners and, and pass out the, the uh, principles. But in the meantime, a publisher um, from Ravel, which was a little-known publisher up in New Jersey, heard about the classes. Hit this guy who came down to see us, he was with Ravel, one of his relatives had taken the class in Miami and had told him about it. And so he came down to interview me. And that's how the book came into being. I didn't know how to write a book. He said, if you can get your notes in order, we'll, we'll see what we can do with it. So that's what happened. And uh, maybe you can explain to us what F.H. Ravel was in terms of a publisher. What kind of books did they publish? Well, it was a Christian book uh, publisher. Um, but I'd never heard of them. But they were wonderful to me. And they published the book, and they said, the, um, the publisher said, I think it's going to be a really big book. We're going to print 5,000 copies. And I was horrified. I thought, oh, my goodness, they're going to take such a killing. So Charlie and I bought 300 copies and put them in the garage because we felt sorry for the publisher before he even started. But as it, as it turned out, it, it worked. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's uh, that's really modest of you. <laughs> to, well, to say it, I mean, it, it was a bestseller, wasn't it? It took off. It took off. Uh, there were a couple of things that happened, um, providentially, perhaps. Um, one of the girls uh, in my class, in one of the classes I taught. Her husband was playing golf with Phil Donahue in Miami. And um, Donahue said to this guy, um, we're looking for, you know, we're always looking for new uh, subjects for the program. Have you heard of anything? And he said, oh, my goodness. He said, my wife, my wife is just has been transformed. And so he told Phil about it. And so Phil contacted the wife and said, could you get Maribel to come with you uh, to do a program? And of course, I was thrilled. So we took along a dolphin wife, and the three of us flew to Green Bay, Wisconsin, to do a remote of the Phil Donahue show at the uh, Wisconsin County Fair. And um, it, was a, it was such an exciting thing. I mean, I was a bumpkin from Ohio, Going off to this big venue, we were in a big hangar, and there were thousands of women, and we were sitting on the stage at Phil Donahue is asking us questions about our marriage. And so the, the hour just flew by. We, the three of us told our stories. And at the end of the program, hundreds of women rushed to the stage. They just, they just rushed to us. And they were all talking and chattering, and they were excited. And, uh, but there were some that were angry. And Phil saw this, and he said, this is perfect. This is the kind of show we love, <laughs> where some are for it and some are against it. And so um, Phil really promoted it, and he invited uh, my friends and I back for a number of shows 
which um, corresponded with the book coming out. That was in October, that remote, I believe. And the book came out at the end of October in 1973. And because we were on these Phil Donahue shows, it reached a, a large number of women, which helped promote the book. That's, that's absolutely amazing. You said that some people were angry right away. Do you remember why? Well, I don't. I can imagine why. <laughs> they were mad at their husbands, and here I was saying, go home and, um, you know, love him and admire him and uh, make him feel wonderful, thrill him with sex, and, and they, they reacted, which I understand. Um, but, but Phil thought that was great because that got things perking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine. I can, I can only imagine. I've been trying so hard to find a copy of that episode so I can watch it. And, oh. Um, it's, uh, Phil uh, has kept his archives closed, and oh. very few of his episodes are available for public consumption now. So it's, it's just too bad. That is too bad. Huh. Yeah, that you'd, so, you'd enjoy that program. <laughs> I, I, I remember watching him when I was a kid with uh, my grandmother, so I, I have fond memories of of that show. Now, as you as you wrote the book, uh, I'm just taking a step back. Who was your intended audience? What kind of women did you have in mind when you wrote the book? Oh, I didn't have any women in mind. I was just writing what had happened. Um, I, I was so short-sighted. I wasn't a writer. I I didn't know beans about this. I was just writing down what happened, and that was it. <laughs> maybe you can explain to us what a total woman is, and maybe you can tell our female listeners what they would do, what steps they would have to take to become a total woman. Oh, I'm glad you asked that, because, Gil, I am not a total woman. I am a fragmented woman, but I'm working on it. And uh, whatever a total woman is, I guess that's someone who does it right all the time. That's not me. And I don't think it's anyone. I don't think any of us are perfect. Only one was perfect. And uh, so to be a total woman, but to apply the principles, you can apply the principles even if you're not total. Um, but it's, it's really what I've been talking about. Um, Loving your husband, this is the way I would describe loving my husband. I, I had to come to the point where I accepted him just as he was, and, and I had to realize I could never change him. Ironically, before I married Charlie, I thought he was just perfect. He was just wonderful. He was everything I had dreamed of. But then after we got married, and this happens to everyone, you begin to see the other person's flaws. But how, how egotistical of me to be looking at his flaws. He had none compared with mine and uh, compared with me. So um, I, I just had to realize that I can accept him. I, I, I keep going over these same principles, admire him, adapt to him, appreciate him make his days comfortable and happy when he comes home. I used to greet him at the front door with all the things that had gone wrong during the day. It was because I was so churned up inside. I just had to 
release it on him while he'd had his own problems and he didn't need me to be doing that. I realized I needed to make a comfortable home for him, uh, a home where he could relax and um, and I realized that it was my words, my attitude that created the atmosphere in the home. And and I even rebelled against this myself. I thought, well, that's not fair. What about his attitude? But that that was beside the point because it was my attitude that set the atmosphere. And I realized I was influencing my little girls and Charlie in a negative way, and I needed to change that. And I did. I began to... Um, get myself together before I even got out of bed in the morning. I would pray, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed now. Please help kind words to come out of my mouth. Please help a happy atmosphere at the breakfast table. Because I couldn't do it. I needed God's help. And, but it changed me. And, and Charlie could see that and he responded to it. And the girls responded to it. And, um, we began to laugh again. So uh, as far as telling another woman how to be a total woman, um, all I can do is, is explain that the principles work. If you apply the principles, they work. And, um, and, and it'll be different in every family, of course. But this, this idea of respect and accepting each other um, it was life-changing for us. And, and you, you went over what I think you called in your book the four A's. It was appreciate, admire, accept. I'm blanking on the fourth A. Adapt, appreciate, Adapt. accept, yeah, and admire. And so what, what do each of those things mean? Well, in, in Charlie's case, I, I thought, I want him to do this. I want him to change this. And I wanted, you know, on and on and on. So I accepted him. I realized he was the most wonderful man I had ever met. It was true. He was. And instead of looking at his flaws, everybody has flaws. We're all imperfect. Look at the good things. Promote the good things. And um, that accepting him was, it was just major. And then to admire him, to tell him how handsome he is. He's a grandfather now, but he still sees an 18-year-old lifeguard when he looks in the mirror in the morning. And he sees a tiger. He says to the, that image in the mirror, you tiger, you. I needed to see that same tiger and, and to tell him how I admired him. And uh, he loved it, and he still loves it. And I'll tell you, when he comes home at night... Um, he's working still. He goes to the law office every day because he loves the law. He says, I can't stay home and play golf. All his friends have retired, but he's down there at the law office. But when he comes in home at night, I say, I'm usually in the kitchen, and I hear the door, and I say, you're home. And I run, and I hug and kiss him and take his briefcase and his coat. And <laughs> you know, I, I pamper him. Because he's precious and he's worth it, and he pampers me. Um, and then let's see, appreciate him. Well, I do appreciate all that he does for me, and he's become um, 
the shopper of the groceries. I can't believe it. He says, do you want me to go to the grocery store? Yes, I do. And, you know, he would never have gone to the grocery store in the early years, but he likes it now. So things change. And then adapting to him, that's a, that's a sticky concept in today's culture, adapt to your husband. But you know what? 52 years ago, it was a, a sticky concept for me because I didn't want to adapt to Charlie. I didn't want to uh, do it his way. I wanted him to do it my way. And so we had conflict at every turn until I realized reading reading the Bible, actually, that God had created man to be the head of the family, the leader. And I was to go along with his plan. And I often say to Charlie, look, I'm not for the plan, but I am for the man. And I believe in compromise. We've got to try to compromise. But if we are at a impasse, I'm going to go along with your plan. And he likes that. And sometimes he goes along with my plan because marriage, marriage is hard. Two people blending two egos together, that's a very difficult thing. But it can work. Can you explain the concept of submissiveness in marriage, which I think is what ADAPT is based on, um, uh, to our listeners who might not be familiar with Ephesians? Yes, that's it, definitely what it is based on. <laughs> Um, well, it's a difficult concept, as we said, uh, but, but the idea is simply allowing him to be the leader, submitting to your husband as to the Lord is what the scripture says. I had a woman say to me one day, well, I don't submit to the Lord. I don't even know the Lord. I said, I understand, but that's, that's what God says let me lead you to make life better for you, to make life happy for you. And in a marriage, the husband, if he's a good man, he wants to make life better for the wife and, and the family. And so I, I think submitting, not being subservient, but on your own volition saying, I'm going to go your way, um, Charlie is very careful that he wants to do it the right way because he knows I'm looking to him. So in, in this household um, where the wife submits to the husband, what should a wife do when she's upset or in disagreement with her husband? Well, she should certainly tell him. Uh, you got to be able to express yourself. But this is where the different principles come in about a gentle answer and and not screaming and pounding and demanding, but, but telling what you feel uh, in a way that he can hear it. I didn't realize when I got married that Charlie did not respond well to hysterics and tears <laughs> and screaming, but that was the way I approached him because that's what I had seen. But being married to a lawyer, I had to learn to present my case in a logical, gentle way that he could hear me, so that he didn't turn, uh, turn away from me and turn off. I, I wanted him to hear me. And um, I think a wife has to become a psychologist. She has to know what works with her husband 
and um, and we we had all sorts of things in the class. Like we would say, you never tell uh, dire things after 10 p.m. when he's exhausted. You never tell him without feeding him first. On an empty stomach, it's not going to go well. If you've got to cry and scream and have hysterics, you do that by yourself before he before you come to him because he's not going to hear you. You know, it's just gentle, innocent little things, but they work. How would you respond to women who read this and say, well, why shouldn't the man adapt too? Oh, well, I said that myself. <laughs> I want him to adapt to my way. But the thing is, Gil, if you're with someone and they are giving to you and and trying to uh, help you in every way and meet your needs, that makes you more receptive to wanting to help them, right? And it's the same way in marriage. I mean, if the wife is um, helping the husband in every way she can and... and uh, feeding him, I mean, just simple things. But you can't get along on an empty stomach, and, and the husband doesn't know what to do about the kitchen, usually. I, I had so many women who, um, as I said before, they didn't make dinner. And the husband would come in at night, and he was so disappointed and, and hungry. Well, you can't function like that. So... Um, the wife has to meet her obligations of, of meeting his needs, and then and maybe he will catch it. I think a lot of things can't be taught. I mean, we all come from families where we, we bring the baggage of the family into the relationship, and maybe the husband wasn't trained to be a good husband. Maybe he didn't have a father in the home. Maybe he never saw the right way. But I think we can teach each other um, the principles can be caught, and if you're with someone who is loving you and admiring you and helping you, it can change a person. Those principles can actually change a person. So, when I read your book, I what I kept coming across was how important sex was in a marriage, and you talked about things like super sex, and. Uh, maybe our our listeners might not be familiar with Hebrews and where it says, you know, in the in the marriage bed, um, and talks about how um, the marriage bed remains undefiled. But maybe you can explain the Christian understanding of the importance of sex in marriage and the ideas about sex that the total woman advocates. Well, I believe that God is the great romantic in the sky. He's the one who who sought up marriage. He sought up sex. Uh, I mean, across all nature. I, what a God he is. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. And I, I think of that first couple in the garden, um, when, they were, when they were in the garden, they were married. God married them, and he gave sex to them as a wedding present. And, you know, he only had a couple of... Uh, of commands for them. We've got the Ten Commandments and all sorts of things, but they only had a couple. One was, um, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except one, 
so don't eat there. And then I want you to multiply and have fill the earth with people. So they had two commandments, eat well and have sex. And that's a pretty good deal. So I think that, that we need to remember that when we get married. Uh, you know, you, when, before you get married, you just can't wait to get married and have sex all the time. And then afterwards, you think, a lot of wives think, whoa. But the man is still hoping that it's going to continue on that way. And, and when we think that God gave sex for our enjoyment, um, a lot of women still in this day and age have hang-ups about sex. So we've got to get our lives together and, and um, decide which way we're going to go. But I think that verse that you referred to is that God is saying you don't have to get married, but if you get married, do it right. Give honor to each other, be faithful to each other, just knock his eyeballs out by all these antics of sex, and it's, it's legal, it's right, it has God's blessing, and go for it. You know, one of the things that people associate the total woman with is the saran wrap at the door. <laughs> But that's not actually in the book, is it? No, it isn't. I was on it. I think it was on Donahue, and some caller <clears throat> called in and said it was around Halloween, and uh, they were telling different stories that uh, they were dressing up for Halloween. And one woman said, "Well, I took Saran wrap and wrapped myself up, and met my husband at the door, <laughs> and." gave him the edge of the saran wrap and said you can unwrap your present so he liked that a lot but I thought that was a great idea and I have to tell you this at Christmas time they make saran in pink and green so it's much more flattering for those who think that they wouldn't like to do that but you know I did it one time and Charlie liked it and we laughed if you do it just one time your husband has that image and memory and it makes him smile and that's the whole thing we just want to make life happy life is hard it's getting harder uh, the world is in such a crazy way a total woman concept is make today the best you can knock his eyeballs out thrill him uh, let him know how much you care what I was struck by is in, in The Turtle Woman, you suggest, to knock his eyeballs out, you suggest using costumes. Right. Well, can, can you tell us a I never thought of such a thing until I got into this class. But I, I realized that, um, <clears throat> I mean, in the movies, everywhere we go, people are dressed up in wild and wacky outfits, and it's legal. Why shouldn't the wife do it? So I began dressing up in silly outfits. Some were silly, some were pretty, but it was a different look. You know, usually he, when we first got married, I would be working right up to the point when Charlie came home and I had the, the mop and the bucket and I was, I looked like um, the, something the horse had drug in. And I realized that wasn't the look I wanted him to see especially when he went to work each day and had these gorgeous secretaries and they all smelled delicious with their wonderful perfumes. And uh, then he came home to this. 
And so I began to dress up in, in uh, crazy little outfits. And of course, by that time, I had two little girls, so they dressed up too, and we would meet Daddy at the door. And, you know, he would laugh. And, but it set the tone for the evening. This is so important. The first four minutes, when a man comes in the door at night, and I realize a lot of women are coming in the door at the same time he is or after. But those first four minutes set the, at- the tone for the atmosphere for the evening. And um, we, can, we can make it a wonderful atmosphere. It's up to us. What were some of the suggestions or playful ideas that you proposed? Well, just what we've been talking about. Um, <clears throat> I go back to feeding him. This is so important. <laughs> um, and, and making sure that you look and smell divine and your attitude is right. And then pulling out all the stops. Um, whatever you do in your own bedroom, it's up to you. But you're allowed to do it. It's legal. And um, just make him the happiest man that ever lived. You know, a lot of people have this misconception that Christians are anti-sex. What would you say to them? I think that's been floated out there, but I I don't think that's the case among my friends. I've got a lot of Christian friends, and I know they're not anti-sex. And... um, I mean, if you read the Bible, my word, if you read the Song of of Solomon, it's just the most uh, exciting, sexual, beautiful words. In fact, I, I advise women to read that and then to read it with their husband. I mean, that, that's better than any, um, any movie or erotic works you can read. It's, it's wonderful. And God puts his blessing on it. One of the things I've, I've been curious about for a long time is what kind of responses you receive to the Total Woman from readers? Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, we received... Oh, at first, we just were having a few letters come in, and then there were hundreds of letters that were coming into the post office box, and then there were thousands of letters that were coming in. And it was interesting to me, Gail, out of thousands and thousands of letters, I maybe had six letters that called me a jerk. And it just means that the ones who thought I was a jerk weren't writing. Only six of them decided to. But um, that was interesting to me because I saw that there was a real need. Um, The women who wrote, and there were men that wrote too, the, the letters basically were good news and bad news. And uh, the good news letters were telling of, of happy homes and how husbands and children were responding and they were having fun together. And uh, the husband was coming home again. Uh, marriages were being restored. That was wonderful. Um, I remember I had a touching letter, one little... A mother wrote and said her little boy had said to her um, last night, Mommy, your eyebrows aren't down anymore. You don't yell anymore. And I thought, that's a family. There's a change there. The little boy sees it. 
the mother is different. So uh, that was exciting to me to hear these letters. One man wrote to me and he said, um, I've been married for 42 years and I can't get any cooperation from my wife. Please send all information that you have. Am I too old at 76 to dream of a total woman? And uh, I received a lot of letters from men who were brokenhearted and said, how can I get my wife to, to read this and even consider this? So that was touching. Um, another woman wrote to me and said, um, I just read your book and you sound like a total nut to me. But with a 20-year marriage that's a total failure, who am I to judge? And then she signed it quick. Somebody, anybody, everybody, help. So people were really responding. And um, we tried to answer all the letters. I'm sure I missed some, but um, they were families, people writing for help. And it wasn't that I was qualified to answer and give advice, but I encouraged them. And um, there were a lot of changed lives. It was great. Now, did, did women ever write to you asking for further help, saying, I've tried what you've suggested and it's not working. What do I do? Sure. Of course they did. And, you know, we, I, I had my friends... <laughs> We would, six of us would sit at the table once a week and answer letters. And all we could do really was encourage them. Um, but a lot of people's lives were changed. They would write back and tell me how their lives were changed. And I saw my friends' lives being changed. My life was being changed. So, you know, it wasn't that we had the answer for everybody, but... Um, we wanted to be an encouragement. Well, did I tell you about the show I was on in Midday Live? Uh, our publisher sent me on a 17-city uh, tour across America when the book came out. And so that was very interesting because in every city we did the TV shows, the newspaper, the radio, and... Um, and met with different people to tell them about the story. All I did was tell my story over and over. So uh, the media was really uh, involved. So anyway, at the end of that 17 cities tour, we were in New York City, and that day I did Midday Live, which was a TV show at, at noon in New York. And on the panel that day, there were six celebrities and me. <laughs> And the subject was marriage and relationship. And so everybody was telling their point of view, and they asked me, why are you here? And I said, well, I've written this book, and my uh, point of view is that I am giving 100% to my marriage, uh, regardless of whether Charlie responds or not. And I'm doing this with no thought of what I will get in return and it has changed our marriage, and I'm ecstatic over it. So they all screamed and jumped all over me, and one woman said, you're a prostitute. And oh, it was just, I, I, you know, I was such a naive young person, I didn't know what was happening. 
But I thought, this is so wild, because they're mad at me because I love my husband, and we finally got it together. Well, anyway, it was an unsettling experience. So we came back home to Miami, and the next day, I got a phone call from a psychiatrist in New York who had watched the show, and he said, I called to encourage you. I watched the show, and... um, Don't pay any attention to those people on the panel. He said, your principles work. And um, it takes a very strong person to initiate a cycle of behavior in the home. And this is what you've done. And so I was so encouraged and thrilled. And I thought, look at the power that a woman has. We have the power to initiate a cycle of behavior in, at school or at work or in the home. And how thrilling that is, we can do it. It's up to us. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Samia Lee Ganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producers are Chris Babbitts, Isabel Mikado, and Mallory Zemanski. Our intern is Julian Harbaugh. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We are also grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences program for undergraduate summer research. Sexing History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. Sexing History is grateful for a grant from the Program in American Studies in the Americas Center Centro de las Americas at University of Virginia. The Americas Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. If you're enjoying our show, you can help new listeners find us. Please review us on Apple Music and share links to our episodes on social media. To stay up to date on all things sexing history, or to send us a note, visit us on our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening.